I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get right into it. We uh, This is really fun. We're sitting down with Dr. Mike Ripley. Uh, Dr. Mike Ripley is a reproductive endocrinologist at Atlantic Assisted, uh, Assisted Reproductive Therapies and an assistant professor in obstetrics and gynecology at Dalhousie University here in Halifax. Um, and also, I believe... The co-creator. The co-creator <laughs> of Taylor's soon-to-be <laughs> offspring... Um, that's so cool. <laughs> it is, yeah, that is. It really is extremely. Cool. It is extremely yeah. surreal. So wait, hold on, hold on. How? 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 How would you, Mike, be the co-creator? Are you the one that actually? Are you the one that actually impregnated Kyla? Um, yes, technically, <laughs> technically I was. Technically so speaking, yes. I uh, I think <laughs> I did both the egg retrieval and the embryo transfer. Yeah. I think didn't yeah. I? Wow. Yeah. 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 Wow. But I hadn't met either of you as patients up until that point. Yeah. It's so it's it's totally wild now to be like sitting in this in this room with you and like and we're you know we're gonna talk about the the whole like the whole field and everything mm. but just that I don't know it, especially in hind, hindsight being twenty twenty you know Kyla's due in a month and a half you know it's very surreal now now Taylor do you feel like Mike is just as much the the soon to be father as as you are in this situation <laughs> I mean like it, like. In a in a in a in a weird sense, yes. I would say that in a financial sense, I would say no. <laughs> but in a spiritual sense, yes. It, it would be really interesting if somebody just came into this episode not hearing Mike's qualifications, and we're like, "Wait, is this whoa, another whoa, whoa. one of those like Sperminator episodes?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, speaking of the Sperminator, we will get to him later in the episode because I'm 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 dying to hear Mike's uh, opinion. But um, Mike, let's first off, let's start with. Um, uh, how did you how did you decide that this is what you wanted to do with your your life? How did you get into uh, obstetrics and actually, what is the different? What is obstet- obstetrics and gynecology? What's the difference there? Uh, so it's all really the same. It's sort of two different fields under one umbrella. So I I mean the 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 long short version of the story is I mean I went to med school as you'd probably hope and expect <laughs> um, and I thought in med school that I might want to do like emergency medicine because it's really kind of neat and exciting um, and I thought I might want to do orthopedics because I like sports and you know you watch somebody get injured and trying to think like what they might have hurt that was mm. kind of fun um, and I ended up going and doing um, like an OBGYN rotation in St. John um, and Really, really enjoyed just like if you're going to be up in the middle of the night doing something on call, because most of our jobs involve that, like being up doing something that's happy most of the time, like delivering babies mm. is really, really nice. Um, and it does have a little bit of 
that emergency medicine kind of feel to it where like you never know what's going to come through the door mm -hmm. like sometimes it's really really straightforward and frankly like a little dull but then there's times that it's really really not dull um so that part is like that's kind of how i got to the residency program that i did and then um, what i do with the fertility clinic is really um, a sort of a subspecialty of the OBGYN sort of program. So um, I really like, I mean, the residents would probably disagree with this, but I, I do like technology. And uh, like IVF is is really something that's a fairly new field. I mean, new in the last 20 to 30 years kind of thing. Seven, but it, it was like a 70s sort of like, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it was really like birthed in the 70s, no pun intended. Yeah, no. It, it, well, literally, the first IVF baby was born in 1979. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, like, it's it's at least that new. But, I mean, the way that it's practiced right now is really more like the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and so it is neat in that way in that there's, like, constantly new things sort of yeah. happening and being invented. I, I think in a way that's different than a lot of other areas of medicine. So, um, I do like that aspect of it, and it's really, really, really rewarding to help people either yeah. start families or extend their families. Man, how cool is that, that that the first person born through IVF could potentially still be alive today and is like, I'm, that, that was me. Well, it's yeah. funny you say that. So she 100% still is alive because I went to a conference in the United States one time for like this, it was in Chicago, this infertility conference, and they brought out as the no. like guest... <laughs> Her name's Louise Brown, and Fucking she is the Louise. first. <laughs> I, wonder if, I wonder if it's our Louise. Uh, she lives in the UK, so I don't think so, but you never know. Um, and uh, so they brought out Louise Brown, which sounded really cool until you just realize, like, she's just a person. Yeah, totally, <laughs> Like, right. she doesn't she happen to be. speak to it. Right. She was, like, she can't say, oh, when I was, like, in the embryology lab. And, like, she now has, like, her own kids, and they were not born through IVF. And, like, I, I, it was a little, like, underwhelming, but also sure. kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. I was uh, I was listening to, this is a, a show that we've, that I've brought up on the show a few times. When we've talked, whenever we've talked about genetics, I've talked about this show. There's a show on Netflix, four or five part series called Un Unnatural Selection, and it's all about CRISPR and um and gene editing and stuff and they sort of made it they were trying to compare the potential future of gene editing to the to the advent of IVF and how that was sort of this new technology that at the time like religious groups thought was blasphemy and that you were sort of playing with god and everything mm. like that like how is that from, you know, from, I guess, a bit of a historical standpoint for IVF treatment, how, how, how did that like morph over time, the acceptance of this new way to produce humans? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it certainly has changed over time and, and just in the same way that all social norms kind of change over time. I can't speak to it that directly because like when IVF was, you know, starting out, I was like in, in, like I was a toddler. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you no, know, from what I've read, I mean, certainly it's become certainly much more commonplace um, to the point that now, like if, if somebody says, oh, well, you know, we did IVF or this is our, you know, baby and the baby was born through an IVF cycle, like nobody thinks anything of it other than probably just feeling sorry for the fact that you had to go through all that to have a child yeah mm -hmm. um there are a few um very sort of uh religious mostly catholic kind of countries in europe that have still have very strict laws around 
what you're allowed to do with an embryo. So you're not actually allowed to freeze an embryo. Mm. So mm. It, when you do an IVF cycle, the embryos either have to be transferred or, or I guess discarded, although I don't know how that works as well. Um, mm. But yeah, so I mean, there are still, you know, some kind of um, sort of religious objections to, to some of what we mm. do. But I think even a lot of that's kind of gone by the way. There, there was a, uh, there's a, there's a treatment and I'm not, I, and I, I have no idea what really what it entails. I can't remember, but maybe you will because I know I'm I'm fairly certain you can't do it here, and that's why um, somebody I know went to Czech Republic to have a to have something done where they were it's not something to do with like using a different egg or a different uh, sperm or something like that, and just it, it's a procedure that is you know not not sanctioned here but sanctioned there, and they were going to do that. Yeah, so I think you're what you're getting at is uh, donor egg IVF. Yes, and so it, it's a little bit complicated in Canada because in Canada they don't want to commodify r- reproduction in the same way that they don't want to. We don't want to commodify lots of different things. Like you can't buy a pint of blood from somebody, right. and you can't mm-hmm. pay somebody to you know have them give you their kidney. Mm-hmm. And in the same legally. Way, on the black market yeah I'm going to say I've sold pints of my own blood but not going to say I haven't so we'll just put that out there within the healthcare system you're not not allowed to do those things and so um, it, it gets a little bit tricky in Canada because if you say are at an age where IVF is unlikely to work for you or you've done cycles before and and it hasn't worked um, you can look at doing donor egg, but typically because you're not allowed to pay somebody for their eggs, like who's going to, out of the goodness of their heart, go through an IVF cycle and give you their eggs? Well, probably a friend or a family member, but those people don't necessarily grow on trees, right? Mm. Because they have to be, you know, preferably under the age of 35 or 37. You might not have somebody in your life that you're willing to ask to do that or who is willing to do it. So, you know, essentially that leaves you with the option of looking for an anonymous donor and if you're not allowed to pay somebody in this country to do right. that, you might have to go outside the country. Yeah. Um, mm. Something that is commonly done is there are egg banks in other countries the same way that there are sperm banks. Oh, okay. And you can actually buy frozen donor eggs. So somebody's gone through an IVF cycle, had their eggs retrieved and frozen, then those eggs can be, and we do this at our clinic as well, and the eggs can be shipped to a clinic in Canada and then we're allowed to use them to try to help you have a pregnancy with them. So nice. it kind of skirts around the rules a little bit because the patient is paying the egg bank in the United States and then they're shipping them to Canada where, you know, we're just using them and they're not paying us specifically for the eggs. How do those right. get shipped? Is that like a UPS thing or like, yeah. like straight up? It's like in a, in a, like a courier. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it's kind of a high stakes. We've actually had patients. So, so it's not just like, that's not the only scenario where you would ship either eggs, sperm or embryos. So say, you know, you had an embryo frozen in Halifax, but you moved to Vancouver. We have patients that choose to have their embryos shipped to a clinic in Vancouver. And so we've actually had patients that have opted to ship, like say they had four embryos to ship them in two different shipments just because they're worried there might be like a plane crash. Sure. Right. Um, Of course. Which is like, I would never have thought of that until we started having patients ask about it. Like president, vice president deal fly on air force one together yeah yeah and if uh yeah if there's any security uh, concerns you just put the egg, the embryos in a bunker i just wanted to ask a question about that too with the egg banks in the united states would the people who are donating to those egg banks would they be financially compensated yeah absolutely okay. so um and, and there are egg banks that 
will spell right out on their website. There's almost like a side of their their website that is egg donor directed. And then there's like a side that's like egg purchaser right. directed. And right. so like you can actually go on a few of these websites and find out if you were to be an egg donor, yeah. exactly what you mm-hmm. think. Like when I go on to use Fiverr sometimes, sometimes I'm going on as a creator and sometimes I'm going on as a like a, per- a purchaser. And I sometimes mix up what side of the site I'm on because I'm like, oh, fuck, I forgot that I'm still logged in as a creator. I do the same shit on Airbnb from hosting to Yes, to yeah, travel. exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Such great comparisons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so talking about the like CRISPR and, and, and that side of like, like technology when it comes to um, like working with, with human life. And, and, and you were kind of like, we were talking about the religious aspects of it and, 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 and playing God. Um, this is something I've never actually thought about until right now, but in terms Those of the, the best thoughts, the, in terms of the work that you do are like, how much control do you have over what you can be producing? Like, like, can you, can you, can you, like in, in Taylor's instance, like, do you guys have a conversation with Taylor and Kyle and go, do you guys want a boy or a girl? We can do that. Do you want right. to, do you want to, you know, do you want a boy that's, uh, that's going to be six foot five and like really into, uh, Lego, like we got you. Or, Cryptocurrencies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like how, 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 I, I guess the question is, is that possible to, to like select the sex? And if so, is that allowed? So it is certainly possible to find out what the sex of an embryo is. So there, wow. there is a whole um, sort of technique called pre-implantation genetic um, testing where an embryo is made and then just at the same point that you would normally be put it, transferring that embryo into a uterus instead of doing that you biopsy sort of the outer surface of that embryo so those are the cells that eventually turn into a placenta not the cells that turn into the baby mm. um, and so you biopsy those cells and then they can be genetically tested and um, when you do that, one of the things that gets tested is, you know, does this embryo have two copies of all 23 chromosomes? And then, you know, the 23rd chromosome chromosomes are the sex chromosomes. So you're going to find out whether there's an XY or an XX. Um, in Canada, you're not allowed to do sex selections. So there are certainly countries where it is not illegal to do that. Mm-hmm. And when you do IVF, you can actually choose whether you want yeah. to. Tr- so say you have a few embryos and there's a few male and a few female embryos. You can say, well, I want to transfer that embryo. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in Canada. And there, there actually have been like celebrities that in the States that have been very like upfront about, you know, well, we're going to this pregnancy, we're going to go and have a girl kind of thing because we had a boy last time. So you can't do that. Um, And I mean, you the the only I was going to say the only context where you can do that is if you have if you're a carrier of a genetic condition that is serious, that only is going to affect. Sure. It's usually a male. Um, What would be an example of that? um, (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, So hemophilia would be yeah, one yeah. Mm-hmm. so if you you know in that case if you have you know if you have a condition that's going to affect one sex or the other um or i should say one sex but not the other then yeah you're allowed to select for sex but really you're not that's not the primary focus you're like trying to s- select not that condition yes uh, yeah, right. of course of course so <clears throat> and other than that i mean genetic testing is used primarily for just either selecting a genetically normal embryo, which patients can kind of do electively. They can opt mm-hmm. to do that kind of testing. Um, or if somebody's like a carrier of a genetic disease, and I actually sort of, interestingly enough, tend to use cystic fibrosis as an example. What's that? 
Uh, well, it's uh, so so it's it's so if you had two patients that were both carriers of CF, then I mean, as you know, there would be a one in four chance of any embryo yeah. being a, an affected CF patient or baby, I guess. Um, and so you can do PGT to select not for CF in that case if you wish to. Right, right, um, right. So that's that's um, that's kind of what we can well, do with genetic now testing. with that then. Um, because we now know that you're having a girl mm-hmm. in, in like just over a month. Um, Dude, that's crazy. and so did you yeah. know <laughs> that it, it was a girl before, uh, like, is that something that you actually basically just like, even without trying find out anyway? Um, and so you knew this before Ta- Taylor and Kyla? So I didn't end their case because they did not do that genetic testing. Um, what's wrong with you guys? Why didn't you do that? It's expensive. Oh, yeah, it significantly increased the cost of what is already a very expensive process. And so, you know, certainly any patient has the option of doing it. There's probably some patients that it makes more sense to do yeah. to, to do that than others. Like if um, we like if like if I knew that I was a CF carrier. Or, or if you, you, or if, you, or if I, or right. if I decided to do IVF, right. like yeah. I would be like definitely right. do that. Yeah. And then we're going to look at whether the embryo that we're putting in um, has, you know, two or one copies of mm. the CF gene. But then we're not just going to look at that. We're going to make sure that, like, there's two copies of each chromosome because there's no point in making sure that the, the baby is not going to have CF but is going to have, like, say, trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. So mm. we're going to look and... And you can tell that. Like, you could go, oh, this, this embryo uh, would likely have Down syndrome. You're basically doing a, a 23andMe <laughs> test on the baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we are, but we're also... There's no current recommendation in Canada for doing what's called comprehensive carrier screening. So that would just be screening for like two or 300 known genetic conditions to see if the, the fetus would be a carrier of any of those. And that's kind of more like when people start talking about like designer babies, et cetera. Like if we did genetic testing on the four of us here, like all of us would be, well, I mean, one of us we know is, but all, all of us would be carriers of some genetic condition, right? right. But it, you know, you only have an affected child if you and your partner both are carriers, yeah, or, yeah, or I shouldn't say you do. You, there's a chance there's a that chance. you 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 know have a child. So with that you condition. can't tell if the baby will have a propensity to feel like um, like caffeine, you know, causes them to have anxiety or something like that. <laughs> no, I don't know that we. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I don't know how medically important that is. And second of all, I don't know that we've isolated this specific gene. I, uh, in terms of in terms of doing IVF. Um, what is like, what is the biggest, um, like prognostic factor for, for, for a successful IVF treatment? Yeah, it's, it's without question, it is female age. So male age doesn't really matter all that much. Um, until you start talking about, you know, guys getting into their, their fifties, there is some evidence that like sperm counts kind of change at that, you know, once you get above that, um, in you know but certainly female age plays the biggest role in all of this and that's true for both not just ivf jeremy but also for natural fertility as well so give me the mess sorry sorry go ahead so um you know and and over time like in the world but especially in canada north america we know that people are waiting until later and later in life to try to have children these days right Mm -hmm. like the average age of first child in Can- of having your first child in Canada uh, recently is it's approaching age thirty. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just even 20 years ago, that was three or four years younger. And wow. we know that as you know, the longer somebody waits to try to conceive, the higher the likelihood is that they're going to struggle to do so. And, you know, I think people see IVF, I mean, not you guys, because you guys are very well versed in this now. But I mean, I think in general, some people see IVF as this like miracle kind of cure for infertility. Yeah. But we know that pregnancy rates with IVF go down with age as well. And I think, you know, seeing that like Gwen Stefani is having an IVF pregnancy at age 48, well, she's doing donor egg IVF using a younger donor, as we kind of talked about earlier. So I, can't, I think it kind of gives those kinds of, you know, those kinds of news stories kind of give a false sense of security. about. Is, is there a full on like cutoff age that, that, you, that you are able to work with? So our, our every clinic's a little bit different. We we do have a very sort of hard cutoff of age forty four. So once you reach age forty four, we will not do IVF. Wow. Um, and the reason for that is, I mean, the pregnancy rate with IVF at age forty four is less than one percent. And so you know, at some point, you know, I think that we're obliged to um, sort of practice ethically and you know i don't want somebody to pay us you know ten thousand dollars for an ivf cycle for a 0.5 percent chance of pregnancy i mean not just because of the money but also because i mean ivf is not exactly risk-free right and so to give people sedation to do an egg retrieval where we're sticking a needle into their ovaries there is a a, a small but significant risk of complications and so there needs to be some kind of potential benefit in order to take on those mm-hmm. risks. And and with the Gwen, with, in the example that you gave there with Gwen Stefani, like using a donor egg and being 48, like there's a, I'm, I'm gathering from that statement that there's a, a significant difference between uh, someone's ability to carry a child versus their ability to produce an, a, a vi- like viable eggs. Yeah. So that's, a, it's a great point. Um, so, you know, the, the, the human ovaries are, you know, kind of a design flaw is that as, people get older, you know, egg quality within the ovaries declines. And that's the main reason that fertility declines as people get older. Um, Uteruses, however, are quite resilient. And, you know, you could actually have somebody come in who is 63 years old and put an embryo in their uterus that's made from like a 25-year-old egg egg donor. And their chance of pregnancy is still quite good. on that note, we also at our particular clinic have sort of a cutoff for that as well, because we kind of said, well, at some point, like what if an 82 year old comes in? Well, we're, we're going to say no. Right. But what if a 76 year old comes in? So the, the average age of menopause is 51. So we've mm-hmm. kind of as a cutoff have used that for like donor egg cycles and right. patients coming in looking to have an embryo transfer in that way. And 44 mm-hmm. is to, for the, for using their own eggs. That's it, the hard cutoff. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I have a question to um, that might shift gears here a little bit, but I'm really curious when you're talking about the percentage of like so the success rate, quote unquote, of of IVF um, treatments. I'm wondering for you personally, um, talking about like getting into this sort of line of work because you know being in the delivery room and seeing like seeing like in such a happy space. I know for a lot of people, IVF can be a really like traumatic experience and really hard for them to go through um what has it been like for you personally to sort of manage like the really happy situations and balance that with the caring for a patient who doesn't have that positive experience yeah i mean i I think that's in terms of what i do at the fertility clinic that's certainly the hardest part of what we do um and 
you know, there are patients that, I mean, for a number of different reasons, may end up doing, you know, multiple IVF cycles or certainly a number of embryo transfers and either not have a pregnancy or not have a baby. And, you know, it is very, I mean, I can't even imagine how difficult it is for those patients. Um, we do have a number of kind of supports for them. We have a, a reproductive psychologist who works closely with our patients. You know, if somebody's really struggling, we'll offer to refer them to our psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a multidisciplinary team at our clinic of nurses who are very good at helping patients manage sort of expectations and also deal with like these kinds of disappointments. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly it's, it's very, very hard. Um, you know, and that it's, you know, it's never anything that's going to be easy um, for, I mean, more so for the patients, but also for the people that work at the clinic. Yeah. Even for the ones that end up, you know, successful, like being with uh, Taylor and Kyla going through this experience, like there's so many ups and downs. And Taylor, you put it really well, I think, in the conversation that we had with Kyla, talking about like the milestones that you have to hit and there's so many of them and they, and at sometimes they're so close together and like, you know, after one checkpoint, the statistics can look really good. And then like the next one, they look fucking terrible. Yeah. And it's just when like you, this constant up and down. When you do that retrieval process, and obviously you can speak this to this in, in, in detail and from the, and from the technical aspect as well. Like when you do that retrieval, I can, yeah, yeah, you, I was talking about you, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. I'm glad that you knew that. I was talking I'll let you to take you. the next one. Brian. <laughs> um, when you're going through that, when you do the retrieval and then you go through that, that five day period from retrieval to, um, to, uh, to, um, um, what, what's the word? Transfer. Transfer. Um, and the embryo you go from, you know, there's that, those multiple stages that the eggs go through, you retrieve the eggs, you've got a number of eggs, then they're fertilized and how many actually fertilize and of the ones that fertilize, how many start to uh, start to split cells and, and you're getting these calls. And I mean, like in our personal experience, Kyla got I think it was nine eggs and, you know, she's using reference of friends that have done IVF and everything. And, and we got nine and, and that was really disappointing for, for, for Kyla. And, and, you know, I'm a forever optimist. So I'm going, I'm, I'm going nine. Like, fuck dude, nine, not, that's a lot. And then, and then you go, and then I think five, like five fertilized or, or three fertilized, no, five fertilized. And we were like, oh shit, that's a 50%. And then there's, and then three of those start to develop. And, you know, that roller coaster process of, wow, that really sucked. Okay. That really sucked, but this is awesome. And now we're, and and now we're going into the transfer and that's it. I mean, it reminds me of being in the crypto market. You know, it's like, it's this roller coaster. It's very similar. It's very, it is very similar to financial markets. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, what that this is yeah, sorry, our sorry. embryologists call you and they just say you know what bitcoin's up today that's shocking I, I was i was really struck by i was really struck by how how sweet and compassionate the staff are when they're when they're calling you and delivering that news because that is hard that's hard yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you get little, I think as a patient, you get like little bits of news at each step along the way, right? From the time that you start the stimulation process. So that's about, you know, you guys have talked about this on podcasts before, but you know, that's about a week and a half or so. 
and you're constantly getting feedback every time you come in for an ultrasound and blood work, like your estrogen level is this, and this is how many follicles you have growing, and this is what sizes they are. So then, you know, patients start thinking about, well, how this is, how is this going to look in two days? And then they come in and they get, you know, that little bit of information. And then, like you're saying, <laughs> then they do the egg retrieval and we tell you how many eggs there were. We tell you then the next day, how many of them fertilized? And then, you know, tell you the next day how many are still growing. And then in our lab, we actually don't look at the embryos anymore um, from day two until day five because we want to keep the incubator close so that the temperature stays constant gas concentrations stay the same as well because it's you know according to embryologists in our lab who i trust very much they say that's important i don't know um, so <laughs> we, we, they're, they're excellent and we trust them on that um so we we don't really look again until day five but i think that's actually in some ways good and bad right because you're not giving patients like constant news every single day we actually used to do that up until a few years ago but then on the other hand like they show up on the day of the embryo transfer and it's like we're opening the door to the incubator and uh letting you know what's there and it's yeah. it's obviously a big day right yeah. and you guys were fortunate that you know i think i'm allowed to say this that you had you know a couple really good quality embryos yeah, yeah. and uh but not everybody does and so that that can be tremendously disappointing mm. um depending on what the news is that day what is what is the because uh, how do you oh, how do i phrase this question it seems like we were talking about age being like a you know the biggest determinant for you know the quality of the egg um, that's that's going to be produced, but there, you know, I know somebody in my life that you know went through several IVF cycles and did you know and traveled to different countries and did, did different procedures and never worked. <clears throat> and from a medical standpoint, there's no explanation for this. Like what? How how common or how rare is that? And and. Yeah, is there any like direction that the scientific or medical community is going in to try and figure out why that might be? Yeah, so I mean, leading into doing fertility treatment, um, you know, one type of infertility is called unexplained infertility, which always sounds like kind of a cop out, right? Like right. we've yeah. done all these tests, <laughs> and you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we don't know what's going on. Um, or I shouldn't say that. We don't know why you haven't conceived. Um, the weird thing about unexplained infertility is we know that if you have unexplained infertility and you do a fertility <laughs> treatment, your chance of conceiving is still mostly age-based, right? So, you know, it, it's kind of a weird concept in medicine of like, okay, so you have this problem. We don't really know why you have this problem. But if you do this treatment, it might work, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it's it would be kind of like, you know, alarming to have your cardiologist say that to you probably yeah, um, <laughs> but um you know i i think more what you're asking about is you know patients that have done multiple fertility treatments have, haven't had success and have seen you know various experts everywhere you know what's what's sort of coming down the pipeline for, for them i mean the, basically every aspect of ivf is just constantly being researched all the time um out of scientific curiosity and let's be quite frank in this industry kind of financial mm. interest as well um they are you know biopsying embryos was supposed to be kind of the next big thing um, but we know if we put in a genetically normal embryo the chance of pregnancy is still at most about 70 percent. so that leaves mm. like 30 percent of the time being like well this embryo was normal and you said the most common reason people don't get pregnant is because the embryo is abnormal but this embryo was normal 
So what's the other 30%? Well, probably the uterus, right? And so there's questions about receptivity of sort of the, the endometrium or the lining of the uterus, um, you know, and what are the ways that we can improve that? So there, there's a whole bunch of like fairly fancy sort of molecular tests that are being developed to sort of suss out whether or not the endometrium is receptive. And you might say, well, what if it's not receptive? What are you supposed to do? Um, there's some thought that um, some of it might be due to chronic inflama inflammation or infection, mm -hmm. in which case you would take antibiotics. Um, there's some thought that some of it might be due to sort of timing of progesterone exposure. Progesterone is kind of this magical hormone that sort of sets the endometrium up for mm. receiving an embryo and the timing of when how long you've taken it for prior to that embryo going in is pretty critical and, mm. you know we were taking and you yeah. know we were talking about this before we started recording <coughs> kyle and i took uh kyla took progesterone <laughs> oh, that's nice you're like I took you're it as well in spiritually involved yeah, yeah, <laughs> um and 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 you know there's a there was a process before you know before we were in the you know, in the funnel for IVF treatment, there was a series of conversations that we had with another doctor to, you know, try and get these like much less invasive um, uh, solutions tossed at us to try and, you know, conceive naturally with these, you know, much less like, like taking progesterone, time progesterone. Mm -hmm. You think too of like, if it's, if it's the lining of the uterus that isn't sticky enough, like have they tried carpenter's glue or like gorilla? Yeah. Yeah. P or PL. like, like maple syrup. Um, yes. It could be these a good are, Canadian yeah, treatment. These are, these that are shit, very, if you get that shit on your hands, yeah. it's so fucking <laughs> sticky. These are very good. Has any, yeah, I has imagine the, that embryo would just stick yeah. to the wall of that fucking has uterus. Has the scientific no community Ew. considered that? It's funny you mentioned that. So you say that as a joke, but... <laughs> There, there, oh, wow. there are so there are clinics that offer this substance that's um, sort of this chemical that's supposed to improve the embryo's chance of implanting, and so clinics wow. kind of call this embryo glue. Wow. So there's no way, there's clinics way. that I've had patients go to where they're like, yes, yeah, so we did a cycle and we paid extra for the embryo glue. So. <laughs> Essentially, it's it's like um, Tree sort of hormonal. Yeah, it's hormonal maple syrup. That sounds like a that sounds <laughs> like an wow. insurance add-on at a rental car. Yeah, so, a rental yeah. car company. I, I will say so. The evidence for that is is fairly mixed. I think is kind of a polite way to put yeah, it. Yeah. So you know we don't we don't offer that at our clinic. But yeah, I mean your idea has already occurred. It's, somebody's already doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for my honorary doctor. Too bad. If it wasn't, you could have made a lot of money there. Something that that uh, that I that Kyle and I have talked about a lot and, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. I'm, I, I, I make the default assumption that there is a heap of scientific evidence that makes it so that, that, that gives the answer to why this is not focused on more. But in Kyle and I's experience of going down this, uh, going on this adventure and doing IVF and everything, <gasps> as we, as we went down that rabbit hole, um, there is, and from my perspective, understandably so, a very, very lopsided attention paid to the the female side of things, and and I and I know that that is like where the magic kind of happens, and that's where the baby is carried and everything, and you know, but w with us, and especially now in hindsight, that it that you know we tried for about a year naturally, unsuccessfully. And then we go through one IVF cycle and it is successful. Um, and I had an issue with my sperm where there was like a malfor like a, 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 
a fairly significant amount were malformed. I had a malformed head and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, we, Kyle and I start talking and hypothesizing fancy word for saying completely <laughs> speculating, um, you know, that if, uh, you know, is that ultimately the reason why just it happening naturally didn't work? And we did ICSI where you select the sperm and everything. And, and, um, and so my thought process is that, you know, I took a, I took a sperm test, um, months and months and months, like a year before that, but it wasn't as comprehensive as the one that you have done when you go to, uh, art. Right. And thinking back, you're going, if it was more comprehensive when I did that first one a year before, would that have provided the, would that have pointed us towards, you know, the chances of us doing this over the next year are very low because of my sperm results. And is this a way in which you can sort of not, I guess fast track is the word is the word, but that, that you can get to where you want to go quickly, especially when you are, when time, when time or age is such a significant factor. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's a, a fair question. I mean, one thing that you have to keep in mind is that with sperm testing, there are very few sort of absolutes, right? There are very few sort of, you know, nothing's necessarily black or white. And so, you know, and, I mean, that said, unless you look at it, you know, this, the semen analysis report and it says zero sperm, right? In right. that case, yeah, it's pretty clear. You're probably yeah. not going to conceive a pregnancy, but, you know. Few, because I'm, because I'm pretty sure that was my result. And <laughs> before you said that, I was like, fuck, so you're saying there's a chance? I've been going for 10 years thinking that there was none. It's like one in yeah, 10 yeah. trillion. Yeah, no, 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 I'm pretty sure it's you, a zero. You and, so. you and Lloyd Christmas both, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's no absolute. So, so when, when we see like multiple problems on a semen analysis, like there's a low count and there's low motility and the morphology is abnormal, you know, then statistically, yes, you're less likely to conceive a pregnancy in that case. But, you know, I, I always, I'm always a little bit cognizant when we're talking to patients about their sperm test results, because I think what they hear as soon as you say, okay, well, there's a, a problem with the morphology is what they internalize is he's saying that we're never going to get pregnant. And, you know, and so ultimately what will happen is you'll have a patient come back that gets pregnant on their own once in a while and they'll be like, so yeah, I'm pregnant and you guys said this would never happen. And, I, and, and so I'm always like, well, we didn't exactly say that. We said it was going to be a bit more challenging and that, it, you know, there's a chance that it won't happen. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think um, doing a more detailed test in advance um, might be good. But on the other hand, like, you know, and I, I may or may not have looked at your results before I came over here, just in case you asked me that question. Um, like there, oh, there well, there would be nothing in that that would make me say like it would be impossible kind of thing. So, right. so again, you, you'd probably have people that you, you know, you run the risk of the other side of it, which is like freaking people out and having them jump into a fertility treatment that they ultimately might not right. need. And yeah, age is going to play a role in that. So, you know, if your partner is 39 or 40, then yeah, you probably want to move towards doing a treatment a little sooner versus if your partner is in her early 30s then you might want to give it a little more time to see if it happens on its own and ultimately i think the 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 motivation to asking that question is not really it's not necessarily rooted in like a personal belief is more so that it's something that i hear anecdotally in my in my sort of in this in the people that i know have gone through that that there's a that there's sort of this um I guess a complaint, if you wanted to, you know, oversimplify it, that there's just so much attention placed on the female 
and you know that well why why isn't there why am i going through this insanely rigorous process and it feels like my partner is not so. yeah no that's that's fair and no, we've actually you know had that said to us a few times before um <laughs> You know, I'm also very aware right at this moment that we are four dudes sitting around talking about women's health, right? (laughs) Um, So, you know, on the other side, what comes up all the time is, you know, you know, I'm using air quotes with this, but like all you had to do was like masturbate in a cup. And on the other hand, like it's not quite fair that, you know, your your female partner needs to do all the IVF stuff that she needs to do. So I think there's kind of that side of it as well. And and that's ultimately why that's where the attention is paid um but yeah and you know i I think it kind of just by nature as you're saying it kind of needs to go that way are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice it's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Yeah. I can imagine um, that when <laughs> there's like, you know, through this, these an- analyses that, that, you know, you're saying to one person like, oh, well, you know, it could be that the sp- sperm are shaped this way. It could be that your uterus isn't sticky enough or whatever. And, and I, I imagine, I mean, yeah, this, is serious, this is a serious question, <laughs> but, uh, but I imagine that people start to internalize like this get this sort of like feeling like oh it's my fault in the relationship and so i'm curious like what sort of resources are available to people who are like my fucking partner can't do it or like or like i feel shitty about myself because like it's my fault that i can't do it because i mean taylor i i I mean i still i'm getting real tired of hearing you complain about how weird your sperm is (laughs) and uh maybe you can direct taylor into the right direction who you can talk to it's a near daily complaint (laughs) yeah so so i i I actually do worry about that sometimes when i when i get off the phone with somebody after we're, we're we finish reviewing their results of like the initial sort of investigations that they need to do in order to investigate their infertility you know you get off the phone and i'm always like i wonder what that conversation is like once i've said okay we'll talk to you later mm-hmm. um and sometimes i'll actually sort of go out of my way to say like you know this is not your fault like you haven't done anything wrong here this is just like it has just occurred like and you know in some ways i'm kind of you know once in a while i'm a little bit like glad if it's a little combination of like a male problem and a female problem because then it like you know at least you kind of know that they're going to feel like you know it's a little bit of both and there may be you know but i'll I'll often say to people like you know you're in this together like you're Mm -hmm. you're a team here doing this trying to have a baby and uh Mm -hmm. you know don't lose sight of that there are um support groups available i mean there's a lot of sort of online forums like non sort of expert forums of like patient groups and everything and i think even just that community is helpful like patients can sort of talk to other patients see that they're not the only people going through this there are also like some some more sort of organized groups like there's a organization called fertility matters canada 
um, that help out with like patient support in that way. There's something called IAC, which is infertility awareness. I'm totally blanking on the last two letters. I'm sorry. Mm. Um, but yeah, there, there are organizations. Yeah, I, I really can't remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there there are um, support groups available, and, and you know, fifteen percent of of couples have infertility, and wow. so you know, you're you're not you're certainly not alone in this. And like, did you guys like? I'm talking to Taylor. Did you guys like? you know, tell anybody that you were struggling to conceive and then have other people come out and go like, oh yeah, us too. Kind of well, yeah. I mean, I was, uh, it was, it was actually really tough, really tough for me because Kyla and I had a, had a difference of, uh, a difference of opinion on that because I do the show. So, I mean, my, by very nature, you know, we sit down and we talk about this stuff all the time. And we're very open and vulnerable about the things that are going on in our lives and everything. And, but then when you're dealing with a team of two people and they have differing opinions, then, you know, you have to, you have to obviously go through that conversation. And so there was, there was a period of time where Kyle and I were sort of going back and forth and going, you know, how open about, like, I think we should be more open. Kyle, I think we should be less open. And then we sort of came to a middle ground where it was like, well, we don't want to just hold this just the two of us because we want to have support. And, mm -hmm. and then that, you know, that circle of people slowly started to grow over time um, <clears throat> until we were more vocal about it. And then once, once that, once Kyla was really public about it, then, I mean, the floodgates opened up. Like mm -hmm. it was, it was crazy. It It is totally mind blowing. The amount of people that are, going through it right now and, and looking for support that are thinking that they might need to, that are maybe just in their, you know, mid thirties and haven't started trying it. And they're, they think they, they, they just have a, a bit of like a fear in the back of their mind that they're, that that's what they're going to have to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tons of people. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, I, I, I was, I was, I mean, I, I was just, I, I'm curious how long you've been, you've been doing this. So I, so I uh, got back here and started working here in September 2015. So I'm I'm coming up. Time flies. Like I'm coming up on over six years now. And mm -hmm. and do you do you um, do you deliver as well? Do you, I do. You do. Okay. Yeah, which is really nice. So yeah, I still do like a bit of a general OBGYN practice a little bit as well. So I still have like a, a prenatal clinic where I see um, pregnant patients for prenatal yeah. care. And then I still like, uh, like on Monday I was on, on labor and delivery and cool. delivering babies and stuff. I, uh, you, know, you might get the hat trick with us. I know it's really neat when that happens. It's really cool. That would be so, crazy. Yeah. So occasionally I'll, I'll end up like delivering the babies of patients that I either did their like egg retrieval oh, cool. or embryo transfer at the clinic. I, uh, just yesterday I recorded an episode of, uh, my other podcast with my wife. Um, and, uh, we were speaking to a midwife, um, and all the work that, that she, she actually, she's, she's soon to be a midwife. She's uh, just finishing her education. Um, and one of the things that I didn't, I had no idea about was ha that midwifery was actually, Such a a word. Funny word. it is a funny <laughs> word, isn't it? Uh, midwifery is, um, whiff, not a sniff, uh, is, <laughs> it sounds like a bad smell. Though. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was, uh, it was deemed illegal at, at one point and it was only, it was only legalized in 1990 in Canada oh, for it to be a practice birth. again. Um, and one of the things that I had asked her because I had no idea that that was a thing. And so one of the things I was curious to ask her was like, considering that this was something that was that was only recently brought back into regulation and practice in Canada 
um do midwives face um uh a sort of stigma within the medical community um uh, as a, a, in terms of like coming to work and and like do they face a sort of pushback with OBGYNs or or gynecologists in terms of like stepping on each other's toes, like you're asking the, Mike if he bullies midwives. Yes, yes. <laughs> so my sounds... question, my, my question, no, 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 <laughs> no, but, no, yeah. no, but but my question, my, that's not where I'm going. But but I but I am curious to know, like, um, what what is what, in terms of like the work that you do and here, like I know that there's not a lot of midwives in Canada, um, and so in terms of the work that they kind of provide and bring into the room when you are working on a delivery like what is what is that relationship between you and and midwives when there is that work to be done yeah i I think um like i mean i can't speak to every you know area of the country in terms of how midwives are incorporated but i know like in halifax here certainly um the midwifery um practice has certainly expanded over the last five to ten years like the i know like the iwk has done a really nice job of trying to sort of get more midwives on board providing prenatal care. Um, I think the care that they provide in a lot of ways is a bit more holistic. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly they'll, you know, help more in the postpartum period after patients have gone home from hospital. I mean, I just, I mean, we don't, as an obstetrician, I don't do that. Like mm-hmm. there's just, that's way outside the scope of what I, first of all, am comfortable doing. And second of all, really have time to do, to, sure, to be honest yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think we've done a, 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 I mean, midwives, you'd have to ask midwives in the city here to, to really get their perspective on this. But, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job of incorporating them into um, sort of the hospital. Mm. They go to like our educational rounds and that they're welcome to participate in all of that stuff. They present at those rounds a lot of the time. So it is quite collaborative. Um, in terms of like the my prenatal patients, like the patients that I see for prenatal care, don't also see a midwife typically. So, you know, they either get followed by a midwife for prenatal care or they get followed by a family doctor or one of the obstetricians at the hospital like myself. Um, And so, but we do often, you know, work with them on labor and delivery because they don't do like forceps deliveries or Mm C-sections. So if they have a patient that ultimately is going to need that type of delivery on labor and delivery, then we would become involved with one of their patients. Right. Yeah. Like you're, you're more, you're more so, um, equipped to be taking care of like high risk pregnancies, whereas they're, they're more so equipped to be dealing with just, just they, regular risk. Yeah. They typically risk. No, like low, we, we call it low risk. Low so risk. Yeah. yeah sure. So they do typically do <clears throat> sort of more low risk obstetrics. Sure. Um, and that's great because I think it's good for patients. Um, like, you know, I think the care that they provide for low-risk OB patients is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, there's a need for it, especially in this city. Like, I mean, our prenatal clinics, like the wait time to even just get patients in for first prenatal visits and stuff can be challenging, right? Yeah. And so, you know, there there have been an increase in the number. This is true, I think, across the country, but certainly in this region, there have been more and more deliveries over the last couple of years. And so we're getting a little bit stretched and it's, mm-hmm. it's nice to have help from different sort of healthcare providers. I, I don't know if this is a controversial question or an area that you feel comfortable going into, um, but we'll I, find out. but I, but I'm, I'm curious and we can just cut this whole section, but <laughs> I know exactly, I know exactly where you're going. I feel like there's been maybe a, a rise in this sort of idea of like people wanting to have like natural 
births, like home births and and a lot of things like this. And and it almost feels like this, like there's a bit of like an influencer culture around that. And it and it, the, there's like this sort of narrative that from my perspective seems to exist that like, you know, people should be having more natural, quote unquote, home births like we did in like the, you know, 1500s. But like when I think of that, I think, holy fuck, like there was so many people who died while giving birth during that time. And like, you know, the fact that we've had this discussion, guys, is like Mm. the fact that the medical miracle of like science and the ability to deliver babies in a safe setting is a a really amazing and privileged thing that we have. Um, But I'm curious from your perspective working um, in this space, like, do you see it, it, it? Does there seem to be like a rise in this idea of like quote unquote natural birth? And is that creating more risk for people who are delivering or giving birth to babies? So, hoping that I don't say anything I regret here in the next minute or so. We'll let but, you listen back to this and yeah. we'll, maybe we'll just cut <laughs> and, this whole and, segment. And, you know what? Just, just to make things a little easier for you, I think I, I would like to step in there and just, just, um, just make sure that we delineate that there, there, there is actually quite a vast difference between home birth and, and free birth, which is what I think you're, you're more so touching on. A and, little and, bit of both, honestly. And the difference yeah. between the two is that free birth is the act of, of, of uh, giving birth without any um, medical, medical uh, intervention whatsoever, um, which, which I think is pretty safe to say is much higher risk than, than not doing that. Um, so yeah. anyway, and, anyway. And, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm curious about like the level of like, is, does it get more risky? Like, is there, so even if you have a really great birth plan and you're planning on doing a home birth, like, is that still more risky than like giving birth in a hospital? I'm just asking statistically, not like, yeah. because people are going to have not, their own opinions yeah. on what they do. Sure, and that's emo- fine. Not, not yeah. emotionally. Sure. Yeah. Feeling. yeah. You know, it, it's um, in terms of the question of, is there a rise in this kind of delivery sort of setting or type? It's really hard to capture that. I don't know that we necessarily know the answer to that. I mean, I think my general sort of sort of suspicion is the same as yours, which is that I think there probably is. Um, you know, is it less safe? I mean, there, there it's, it's funny. There was actually a big article about home birth in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, I want to say like two years ago or so, uh, where they showed that outcomes were equal to in-hospital births. Now, you have to kind of, you know, be aware that this is not a randomized trial, right? So you're not, you're not, you know, flipping a coin to say you're going to deliver at the, you know, tertiary care hospital versus you're going to deliver in your kitchen. Um, And so, you know, a lot of those patients that are delivering at home, I would hope would be low risk patients mm-hmm. to begin with, right? Like mm-hmm. you're not delivering like a, a twin pregnancy at your, in your house. Um, so, you know, I think if it's done properly, the evidence shows that it is not more risky. I mean, on the other hand, there's things that happen you know, on labor and delivery that I sometimes think, what if this person was at home right now? Like this would mm-hmm. not have been a good situation at all. Um, and so it does give me a bit of pause. I mean, I, and I, I know people that have had home births or have attempted to have home births um, that I know and care about and are, I think, reasonable people. Um, one of our neighbors who I we get along with just great, know very well, had a home birth like a, you know, about a year ago. 
And I remember just thinking like, I'm very close to literally where they're delivering right now and have these skills that could come in handy. So like, should I just should, like waiting outside? Well, yeah, it's like, should I have a glass of wine tonight or not? Right. Like, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, but I, you know, I do, I do agree with that. I mean, I think there is a bit of a rise in sort of that in terms of having like a more natural birth and sort of what your birth experience is like, I think Mm -hmm. is increasingly important to a certain number of people. My, my, my opinion on it too really comes from this, this space of like people can decide what they want to do and that's, and that's totally fine. But I, I don't like thinking about the idea that like somebody is sort of calling this like that, like that a, a, a natural birth is quote unquote better or more pure or, you know, like making people feel like my mom, um, I'm a twin and she had a C-section. And so like, you know, my own personal bias in this is like, what? So my mom's, the fact that my mom gave birth to me isn't as beautiful of, as an experience because she did it in a hospital. And I hope that people don't feel like, you know, their choices <clears throat> is better or worse because of mm-hmm. this sort of status thing of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I mean, we often see patients who are really, really motivated to have a vaginal delivery, um, meaning just that's what they, that's how they want to deliver. And like, Mm -hmm. that's how we want people to deliver too, because I mean, there's no surgical risk involved and, you know, you go home from hospital sooner and all of those, you know, no risk of, of like lower risk of, of postpartum complications in a lot of ways as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so like we want that same thing. I think ultimately when things go a little bit south during a labor and we suggest that somebody has a cesarean section, sometimes they're really, really, really upset about like that, uh, uh, upset about that. And there, you know, there are a lot of the times are tears and people, you know, plus, I mean, somebody has been there for 24 hours probably without sleeping. So you mm-hmm. don't necessarily, you know, react yeah. to that news yeah. necessarily yeah. the same way you would otherwise. But, you know, often people kind of feel like they failed, which always yeah. kind of seems yeah. ridiculous to me. Um, and I think, you know, the reassuring thing is I think people ultimately don't care about that as much a month from then when they have a one month yeah. old baby that they love and they're not really thinking like, oh yeah, I had this baby via C-section, you know, yeah. like what that's, a loser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think people like get as, you know, in hindsight probably don't care as much as they do in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly like this idea that you failed because you had a C-section instead of a vaginal delivery that you wanted to have, I think is a little bit mm-hmm. ridiculous. What what might be behind the um, the the motivation? I'm, I'm asking you to speculate here because I'm assuming you don't really know the answer to this <laughs> directly, but you're also much uh, probably more in tune with it than I am. I believe it's Costa Rica has a, they deliver, every birth is, is a scheduled C-section. And so like what might be the motivations behind that being a like a like a nationwide medical uh, policy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why you think I know more about Costa Rica than you do. But uh, I mean, I've been there three times, so maybe I'm the expert. Yeah, like, why, don't, why don't you tell me? Um, so, no, what I, I kind of thought that's where you were going with this. And I, I know there are some countries, and I didn't know Costa Rica, but I know there are some countries with really, really high cesarean section rates. In a lot of places, it's actually seen kind of as a status symbol. Like if you uh, have a C-section, that means like it's kind of a posh thing to do. Like you've got the access to this Abs- medical treatment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like Brazil is a country where that is the case. And I think the culture in Brazil around various forms of, let's say, surgery is kind of different than mm-hmm. it is here, right? 
Um, and certainly I know that that's the case in, in Brazil. I don't know about Costa Rica as well, but mm. from a resource standpoint, it's not a good re use of resources because cesarean sections require more hospital resources. Mm -hmm. And if everybody in Canada decided they were going to want to have a C-section, like it would, it would be literally financially unfeasible for the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Wow. Um, I, I, one of the things that I, that I kind of was hoping to touch on before we, we wrap is, um, you, we've talked about the, the costs associated with, um, IVF treatment. And, um, I'm wondering, first of all, um, is it, is there anywhere in Canada where IVF is, is fully covered by the province? Yes. Yeah, so there have been a couple of provinces that have sort of had IVF funding strategies at various points in time. Um, I think the most sort of recent examples would be Quebec had a funding program earlier in the 2010s um, that they rolled out that essentially was a little bit too generous in a lot of ways. So they didn't put, and what I mean by that is they did not put sort of age restrictions on who could or could not qualify for funding. And you might say, well, that sounds great. Like it doesn't discriminate. Why wouldn't you want a policy like that? Well, the issue kind of gets back to what I talked about before, where, I mean, if the point of funding IVF is to help people start families, you know, and you're paying for patients who are, say, 44, 45 years old to do IVF, but they have a 0.5% chance of pregnancy, well, you're not really sort of allocating those sort of taxpayer dollars in a way that's going to maximize the number of babies that are born or families that are started in that way. So it gets a little bit like, and I'm not a bioethicist by any means, but you know, that gets a little bit complicated. So the program, because they didn't put limits on it, you had a lot of patients that sort of like that maybe had stopped trying previously that are like, Oh, well it's funded. I'm going to go and sure. And that's completely understandable. I would do the same thing if I was a patient in sure. that province at the time. So that program sort of got, um, largely kind of axed, um, in the mid 2010s. Um, because it, it sort of went sort of over budget, let's say. Yeah. Um, more recently, uh, and, and so they've actually brought back funding in Quebec that has sort of more restrictions on it and is a, a bit of a sliding scale based on income in terms of how much funding you get, which seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, Ontario in 2000, I want to say 15, unveiled funding where everybody in Ontario who is a resident of Ontario has access to one IVF cycle in their lifetime for free. Oh, wow. Fully funded. Yeah. Which wow. is, which is really pretty great. Um, that program has kept going even, you know, even when the Ford government took over, there was some suspicion that like with that government, they might not continue to fund this, but they have. Mm. Um, and then there's a couple of other provinces that have kind of partial IVF funding. So Manitoba and New Brunswick both have kind of a, um, tax credit based system. So you can, you know, when you do your provincial taxes, you get up to, I believe it's close to $5,000 back. Um, and in Nova Scotia, actually the, uh, the conservative government that won the election in the fall has actually part of their platform was IVF funding in the form, likely in the form of a tax credit in 2022. Just missed it, Tay. Yeah, exactly. You could have waited another year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, now, nothing has been announced yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they've gotten a little tied up with COVID and everything that's been going on. But uh, there should be, according to the platform, some kind of funding yeah, sometime yeah. unveiled sometime this year. Now, you know, and it gets tricky because obviously, even when there's tax credits, patients still have to front the money yeah, to start the cycle yeah. in the first mm -hmm. place. So, and, it, and, it's, and the prescription 
and the and the drug cost is like when you say IVF cycle, it's the cost of the IVF cycle where the drugs, the prescription drugs associated with it are sometimes just as expensive as the IVF cycle itself. Absolutely. And sort of the the lower somebody's ovarian reserve is, or often that sort of ties into how old the patient is as well. I mean, the higher dose of medications they need, and then their drug costs are going to be more as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the, these funding um, sort of arrangements in these provinces don't cover drug costs. Um, and so, you know, regardless of, of, you know, because there are still drug costs, I mean, there, there are issues with access, right? And so yeah. if you're a, a patient who's lower socioeconomic status and you have infertility, there's a chance that you can't afford to go and do a fertility treatment, whether it's IVF or something else in the same way that somebody who has more means mm-hmm. is able to. I mean, we, we had, uh, from a personal standpoint, we had a, we had a, a drug coverage plan that covered almost a hundred percent of our drug costs. And there are little, like, just to, to just make a public information, there are little loopholes. Like if you work at Starbucks, Starbucks for their employees has a, has a drug coverage program that covers fertility drugs and like Whoa. like there are just cer- there are just certain employers I mean Shout like you know, Starbucks you're em- I mean that you know a lot of employers might have a drug a, a, a plan that covers that but like you you would typically I think more so more so associate that with you know like like maybe uh like like higher end white collar jobs whereas like you know you can work part time at Starbucks and that's included in a plan mm-hmm. yeah oh. I just I, oh, sorry I was just going to say I just learned the other day that Sobeys actually has a fairly sort of generous uh, fertility sort of benefits package Sweet. as well which I wouldn't necessarily have guessed I feel yeah. like I feel like the government from a purely economic standpoint should just totally fund these things because totally. think about it Population. you you pay you know $20,000 to make a kid that is going to be paying taxes for their <laughs> entire life like Seems like uh, if you're thinking of seems like the math works out. If on you're that. thinking <laughs> of if you're thinking of of a province as a business or a country as a business, then there are there are things that produce the item that produces anything is humans. And if you want more production, then there should be more humans. Yeah, that's your, your goal. It's your recruitment cost. It's like the opposite of the one child policy in China. Right? Absolutely. It's just yeah. like we're going to pay for kids to yeah. be made. Which doesn't exist anymore, by the way. <laughs> no, I know, I know. There, there have actually been two sort of economic arguments for funding IVF, like purely along the lines of what you just said, Brian. And one is exactly what you're saying. So, you know, more more children born, more taxpayers 20 years from now kind of thing. And then the other one was initially sort of in i was gonna say the early days of ivf but more like until the last five or six years clinics had been doing a lot of double embryo transfers and over time and so because of that ivf had this label of creating a lot of twin pregnancies right yeah so there was this idea that if a government you know a province funded ivf they can just mandate single embryo transfers if they're footing the bill for ivf and then in that way there would be fewer twin pregnancies meaning there would be fewer preterm births, there'd be fewer babies in NICU, and governments would kind of save on the back end of mm-hmm. like, no, because, you know, if somebody pays out of their own money to do IVF and they put in two embryos and end up with twins and, you know, something happens like they deliver at 30 weeks, then, you know, even though they made those decisions and they paid for that IVF cycle, healthcare system is paying for those NICU yeah, costs, which right. could be literally right. ten, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. so, but the problem with that is yeah. over time, because IVF has gotten better and freezing technology for embryos has gotten better, there's been an ongoing trend towards just putting in a single embryo each time. So 
like I think, you know, our rate of twins at our clinic has fallen from like 25% seven years ago to under 5% this oh, past wow. year. So wow. we've kind of like, if Holy that was, if that was the argument that, you know, patients and clinics could make for funding, we've kind of like killed our own argument by acting in sort of like a more conservative way with numbers of embryos to transfer. Mm. What yeah. are the, what are the, um, what are the sort of risks or what's the thought process around, around from a, from a, uh, I guess like a safety perspective in terms of, of transferring one or two embryos? Yeah. So it really comes down to twins versus a singleton pregnancy. So, you know, we know that twin pregnancies are more risky for the fetuses or for the babies themselves. So, um, you know, about 60% of twins will deliver before term, which is considered to be 37 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, most of those are kind of late preterm births at 35, 34, 35 and 36 weeks where that was me. You were, you were 35 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so most 35 weekers do well and may require a short kind of NICU stay, but not in hospital for weeks and weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, 10% of twins deliver before 32 weeks. And those are sort of the deliveries where, you know, there's risk of long-term health problems from prematurity. Um, and then the other side of it is maternal risks, right? So with a twin pregnancy, basically name any complication that can occur in a pregnancy aside from going beyond your due date. And, you know, that's increased sort of two to five fold with twins. So like wow. gestational diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera. So those are the risks. And so, you know, that's why clinics these days are sort of encouraging patients to transfer one embryo. Because if, you know, on the day of your transfer, you have four embryos. If you put in one, you're going to have three left over. If you put in, I mean, this is basic algebra, but if you put in <laughs> two, there's going to be two left over. And you can freeze those other embryos. And these days, like what you put into the cryo tank. Typically, when we go to thaw it, it survives the thawing process like 97 to 99% of the time. So in the past, that number used to be a lot lower. And so patients didn't really want to freeze embryos because like, here are my embryos. They look good. I want to do something with them. I don't want to risk losing them. Just out of curiosity, what 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 innovations in the cryo process have changed to increase that risk of success um joe so, rogan talking about joe 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 rogan talks about it a lot that really that really just brought sorry about that question then <laughs> speaking of things that have been in the news lately <laughs> so uh yeah so so the the short answer is a process called vitrification which essentially is flash freezing of embryos so they kind of put them in higher solvent concentrations and when they do that it allows the embryo to kind of dehydrate quicker. So I have a friend whose mom calls it like freeze-dried babies, which is always like (laughs) kind of a weird concept. Um, But yeah, so that's, and again, I'm not an embryologist and the embryologists at our clinics could speak to this way better than I could. But yeah, so vitrification became sort of commonplace Mm -hmm. in sort of the early to mid 2010s. And because of that, like when we put things in the freezer, they come out of the freezer in basically the exact same condition that they went into it. Kind of reminds me of like, what was it, what would it have been before in terms of like a percentage likelihood? I think around kind of 60 to sort of 80% at best Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, which, which sounds kind of okay, but I mean, you know, the effort and frankly cost that it takes to make those embryos in the first place. Right. And Mm -hmm. I always tell patients like, you know, these embryos can stay frozen indefinitely without any degradation in terms of quality. Right. It's not like, you know, the, the chicken at the back of your freezer that gets that like yeah. fuzzy stuff yeah. on it. Like yeah. that, uh, that's not what happens in the, in the cryo tank. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, uh, probably like, I feel like I was doing vitrification when I would, um, go out in the summer and get, uh, bumblebees yeah. and then put them in my freezer and tie a, a thread on them and then yeah. fly them around on a leash when yeah. they came back to life. 
Yeah, it's like, and, and what was the survival rate? 80% or so, probably. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't, you were actually doing slow freezing. I guess it wasn't yeah. vitrification. Yeah, that's no, why no. I was having the 80%. That's, that's why one in what? two and five die or 10 died. <laughs> what What are, I guess, in line with this, with you know the the increase in the technology for freezing what are what are some of the things that could potentially be or is there anything on the horizon for fertility treatment whether it's prescription drugs or uh or freezing or whatever techniques and technology that might push this to a different place in the next you know 10 15 years or something I think um, there's a couple things. So, so doing genetic testing of embryos has been around for a little while, but something that's sort of being worked on right now is looking at the spent media. So basically, your embryos are growing in like a bunch of nutrient, a, a nutrient broth is kind of like what some people call <laughs> it, which is like, yeah, exactly. Yum. Delicious. Um, <laughs> and so, the, you know, people are working on taking, you know, when you have that embryo broth or whatever, taking that and actually some cells shed off of the embryo into that. So rather than actually biopsying the embryo and risking damaging mm -hmm. it, you could actually just amplify the DNA that might be in that media. There's also some thought that that sort of nutrient broth, the embryo is kind of a living thing in a lot of ways. So it puts out certain chemicals into that media that may exist in different concentrations in embryos that are more or less likely to result in a pregnancy. So you mm. could kind of do like prognostics based on what is in mm. that media. So that would be one thing. So Testing the aura of the embryo. <laughs> yeah, what's, yeah. what's immediately surrounding <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Mercury in retro. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the humors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that would increase the, so that would give, that would give you a, 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 a greater ability to select for uh, 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 something that's going to produce a higher likelihood pregnancy. Yeah, so it's some combination of like working on embryo selection. Um, and, and people have done all kinds of different things, including um, um, like real-time videos in the incubator to watch the sort of rate at, it, that, at which an embryo grows. So you'd want an embryo to grow at like a steady rate, not one that grows quickly, then slowly, then quickly, then slowly. And so that time-lapse photography is something that's being worked on as well. I, I think, it, you know, there's some labs that use it all the time. I, I think some of the results on that have been a little disappointing. Yeah. So, so that, so embryo kind of stuff in general combined with endometrial stuff in, in terms of, you know, molecular testing and receptivity testing. So I think that's kind of where largely this is going right now um, but it, it's it's always you know you go to a conference and there's always stuff going on mm. you know new mm -hmm. advances that you're like oh that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. and i wish i would have thought of that yeah. Yeah. well you, i mean you work in a fascinating field and yeah. and i you know i very much so you know kyle and i were talking about this last night like i i feel so fucking fortunate that it worked and um and i know that there are a lot of people out there that struggle you know big time you know we we would go to the clinic and you know, we talked to a lot of people that outside the clinic that, you know, they're on their second, third yeah. round of IVF. And I, and I, and I know it's really hard. My heart goes out to those people. Um, mm -hmm. so obviously like anything, you know, that I'm really, I'm, I'm really hopeful for the future of the field in terms of making, you know, upping those chances for people mm -hmm. that are struggling. Mike, this has been a real treat, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come in and, and shoot the shit with us and, <laughs> and educate us uh, even further on, on IVF and everything, uh, everything obstetrics. Uh, this has been really, really fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.